This is Uninhibited, and I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode three. I've been really enjoying doing this, both saucy and challenging. Sorry about episode two. I really kind of mucked up the editing and stuff on there, and I know it may have been a bit of a struggle to listen to, and I promise not to make those mistakes again. By the same token, I am still learning, so stay tuned. I might re-record episode two at some point. We'll see. This experience has certainly been making me think and gasp and kind of be surprised at what I was willing to overlook uh, when I read these stories the first time. However, I gotta say that there are aspects of this that I still find quite titillating and make me all warm and tingly, and certainly part of me is still very much in love with Henry Miller. I would really like to hear from you folks, Um, so why not head on over to uninhibitedpod at Facebook or email me at hauntedbywords at gmail.com. Let me know what you're thinking, any analysis that you would like to contribute, um, or if you have some suggestions for stories that we could look at in future. Um, Please say hello. I also took some time to start a Spotify playlist that is sort of called Girls Who Bleep. You can get the link on my Facebook uh, page, and so that's Uninhibited Pod, just in case you missed it, and comment in your suggestions on what to add. I think that you could probably add the um, songs yourself, too, if I did the settings correctly. We'll soon find out. Okay, so here we go, back to Paris, where we left Carl, Joey, and Colette, in the apartment with no food and no wine and clearly some moral turpitude or at least some significant moral gray area for them not so much for me so it's tricky I know that I would have wanted to be there if I were her at the same time she's not old enough to consent and they are definitely crossing lines lines that didn't really exist in the 30s So, the weirdness of time travel, right? I will reread the last line of episode two, and we will go forward. Thanks again for joining me on this textured journey, and I really look forward to hearing from you. Usually he did these little tricks so fast that before the astonished guardians of the peace could come to their senses, he would be a block or two away, perhaps sitting on a terrace, sipping a beer, and looking as innocent as a lamb. In a pinch, Carl always hawked his typewriter. In the beginning, he could get as much as 400 francs on it, which was no mean sum then. He took extremely good care of his machine because he was frequently obliged to borrow on it. I retain a most vivid image of him dusting and oiling the thing each time he sat down to write, and of carefully 
putting the cover on it when he had finished writing. I noticed, too, that he was secretly relieved whenever he put it in a hawk. It meant that he could declare a holiday without having any guilty conscience. But when he had spent the money and had only time on his hands, he would become irritable. It was at such times, he swore, that he always got his most brilliant ideas. If the ideas became really burning and obsessive, he would buy himself a little notebook and go off somewhere to write it out in longhand using the most handsome Parker pen I have ever seen. He would never admit to me that he was making notes on the sly, not until long afterwards. No, he'd come home looking sour and disgruntled, saying that he had been obliged to piss the day away. If I suggested that he go to the newspaper office where he worked nights and use one of their machines, he would invent a good reason why such a procedure was impossible. I mention this because of the machine and his never having it when he needed it. Because it was one of the ways of making things difficult for himself. It was an artistic device which, despite all evidences to the contrary, always worked out advantageously for him. He had not been deprived of the machine if he had not been deprived of the machine at periodic intervals, he would have run dry and through sheer despondency remained barren far beyond the normal curve. His ability to remain underwater, so to speak, was extraordinary. Most people observing him under these submerged conditions usually gave up on him as lost, but he was never really in danger of going under for good. If he gave that illusion, it was only because he had more than usual need of sympathy and attention. When he emerged and began narrating his underwater experiences, it was like a revelation. It proved for one thing, that he had been very much alive all the while. And not only alive, but extremely observant. As if he had swum about like a fish in a bowl, as if he had seen everything through a magnifying glass. A strange bird he was in many ways. One could moreover take his own feelings apart. Like the workings of a switch Swiss watch and examine them. For an artist, bad situations are just as fertile as good ones, sometimes even more so. For him, all experience is fruitful and capable of being converted to credit. Carl was the type of artist who fears to use up his credit. Instead of expanding the realm of experience, he preferred to safeguard his credit. He did this by reducing his natural flow to a thin trickle. Life is constantly providing us with new funds, new resources. Even when we are reduced to immobility, in life's ledger, there is no such thing as frozen assets. What, am I get what I'm getting at is that Carl, unknown to himself, was cheating himself. He was always endeavoring to hold back instead of giving forth. Thus, when he did break out, 
whether in life or with the pen, his adventures took on a hallucinating quality. The very things he feared to experience or to express were the things which, at the wrong moment, that is to say, when he was least prepared, he was forced to deal with. His audacity, consequently, was bred of desperation. He behaved sometimes like a cornered rat, even in his work. People would wonder whence he derived the courage or the inventiveness to do or say certain things. They forgot that he was ever at the point at which the ordinary man commits suicide. For Carl, suicide offered no solution. If he could die and write about his death, that would be fine. He used to say on occasion that he couldn't imagine himself ever dying, barring some universal calamity. He said it not in the spirit of a man filled with the superabundance of vitality. He said it as one who refused to waste his energy, who had never allowed the clock to run down. When I think about this period when we lived together in Clichy, it seems like a stretch in paradise. There was only one real problem, and that was food. All other ills were imaginary. I used to tell him so now and then. He complained about being a slave. He used to say I was an incurable optimist, but it wasn't optimism. It was the deep realization that even though the world was busy digging its grave, there was still time to enjoy life to be merry, carefree, to work, or not to work. It lasted a good year, this period. During this time, I wrote Black Spring, rode the bike up and down the Seine, made trips to the Midi and to the Chateau country, and finally went on a mad picnic with Carl to Luxembourg. It was a period when Kant was in the air. The English girls were at the Casino de Paris. They ate at Prefix's restaurant near the Place Blanche. We became friends with the whole troupe, pairing off finally with a gorgeously beautiful Scotch girl and her friend from Ceylon, who was a Eurasian. The Scotch girl eventually handed Carl a beautiful dose of the clap, which he, which she cont- contracted from her Negro lover at Melody's Bar. But that's getting ahead of my story. There was also the hat-check girl from the little dance place on Rue Fontaine, where she used to drop in on Carl's night off. She was a nymphomaniac, very gay, very modest in her demands, She introduced us to a flock of girls who hung about at the bar and who, when they could get nothing better than us, would take us on for a song at the end of the evening. One of them always insisted on taking us both home with her. She said it excited her. Then there was the girl at the espicerie whose American husband had deserted her. She liked to be taken to the movies and then to bed where she would lie awake all night talking in broken English. It didn't matter to her which one of us she slept with because we both spoke English. And finally there was Jeanne, who had been jilted by my friend Fillmore. Jeanne would drop in at odd hours of the day or night. 
always loaded with bottles of wine, which she drank like a fish to console herself. She would do everything but go to bed with us. She was a hysterical type, alternating between moods of extreme gaiety and the blackest melancholy. In her cup, she became levitious and boisterous. You could undress her, stroke her twat, maul her teats, even suck her off if you wanted to. But the moment you got your prick near her cunt, she flew off the handle. One minute she'd bite you passionately and pull at your cock with her strong peasant hands. The next minute she would be weeping violently and shoving you away with feet or striking out blindly with her fists. Usually the place was a wreck when she left. Sometimes in her precipitate rages, she would run out of the house half naked to return almost immediately coy as a kitten and full of apologies. At such moments, if one wanted to, one might have given her a good fuck, but we never did. You take her, I can hear Carl say. I've had enough of that bitch. She's mad. I felt the same way about her. Out of friendship, I'd give her a dry fuck against the radiator, fill her up with cognac, and pack her off. She seemed extraordinarily grateful at such moments and for these little attentions, just like a child. There was another whom we met later through Zhang, who, an innocent-looking creature, but dangerous as a viper. She dressed in a bizarre fashion, ludicrously, I might add, due to her Pocahontas fixation. She was a Parisian, mistress of some famous surrealist poet, a fact we were both ignorant of the time. Shortly after we made her acquaintance, we met her one night walking by herself along the fortifications. It was a strange thing to be doing at that hour of the night, and not a little suspect. She returned our greeting as if in a trance. She seemed to remember our faces, but had obviously forgotten where or when we had met. Nor did she seem to be interested in refreshing her memory. She just accepted our company as she would have accepted the company of anyone who happened along. She made no attempt at conversation. Her talk was more like a monologue which we had interrupted. Carl, who was adept at such things, fed her along his own schizophrenic way. Gradually, we steered her back to the house and up to our rooms, as if she were a sleepwalker. Never a question from her as to where we were going or what we were doing. She walked in, sat down on the divan, as if she were at home. She asked for some tea and a sandwich in the same tone of voice that she might have used in addressing a garçon at a cafe. In the same tone of voice, she asked us how much we would give her for staying with us. In a matter-of-fact way, she added that she needed 200 francs for her rent, which was due the next day. 200 francs was probably a good deal, she remarked, but that was the sum she needed. She spoke like one reflecting on the condition of the larder. Now let me see. We need eggs, butter, some bread, and perhaps a little jam. Just like that. If you want me to suck you off, or if you want to just do it dog fashion, whatever you like, it's all the same to me. She said, sipping her tea like a duchess at a charity bazaar. My breasts are still firm and enticing, she continued undoing her blouse and extracting a handful. 
I know men who would pay a thousand francs to sleep with me, but I can't be bothered hunting them up. I must have two hundred francs, no more, no less. She paused a moment to glance at a book on the table at her elbow, then continued in the same toneless voice. I have some poems, too, which I will show you later. They may be better than those, referring to the volume she had just glanced at. At this juncture, Carl, who was standing in the doorway, began signaling me in deaf and dumb fashion to let me know she was crazy. The girl who had been rummaging in her bag to extract her poems suddenly looked up and catching the embarrassed look on Carl's face remarked calmly and soberly that he was out of his mind. Is there a bidet in the bathroom? She asked in the same breath. I have one poem which I will read you in a moment. It is about a dream I had the other night. So saying, she stood up and slowly took off her blouse and skirt. Tell your friend to get himself ready, she said, undoing her hair. I will sleep with him first. At this, Carl gave a start. He was getting more and more frightened of her. At the same time, he was convulsed with suppressed laughter. Wait a minute, he said. Have a little wine before you wash. It will do you good. He quickly brought out a bottle and poured her a glass. She quaffed it as if she were quenching her thirst with a glass of water. Take off my shoes and stockings, she said, leaning back against the wall, holding her glass out for more. Sévin est une saloperie, she added in her monotonous tone, but I am used to it. You have 200 francs, I suppose? I must have exactly that amount, not 175, not 180. Give me your hand. She took Carl's hand, which had been fumbling with her garter, placed it on her quim. There are fools who have offered as much as 5,000 francs to touch that. Men are stupid. I let you touch it for nothing. Here, give me another glass, Will. It tastes less vile when you drink a lot of it. What time is it? As soon as she had closeted herself in the bathroom, Carl let loose. He laughed like a madman. Frightened, that's what he was. I'm not going to do it, he said. She might bite my prick off. Let's get out of here. I'll give her 50 francs and put her in a taxi. I don't think she'll let you do that, said I, enjoying his comforture. She means business. Besides, if she really is goofy, she may forget all about the money. That's the idea, Joey, he exclaimed enthusiastically. I never thought of that. You have a criminal mind. But listen, don't leave me in there alone with her, will you? You can watch us. She doesn't give a damn. She'd fuck a dog if we asked her to. She's she's a somnambulist. I got into my pajamas and tucked myself in bed. She remained a long time in the bathroom. We were beginning to worry. Better go and see what's up, I said. You go. I'm afraid of her, said Joey. Or Carl. I got up and knocked on the bathroom door. Come in, she said in the same dull, toneless voice. I opened the door and found her stark naked, her back turned with me. With her lip rouge, she was writing a poem on the wall. 
I went back to summon Carl. She must be out of her mind, I said. She's smearing the walls with her poems. While Carl was reading her verse aloud, I got a really clever idea. She wanted 200 francs. Good. I had no money on me, but I suspected Carl had. He had only been paid the day before. I knew if I looked in the volume marked Faust in his room, I would find two or three hundred franc bills flattened between the leaves. Carl was ignorant of the fact that I had discovered his secret fault. I'd come upon it by accident one day when searching for a dictionary. I knew that he continued to keep a little sum hidden away in his volume of Faust, because I went back several times later to verify the fact. I let him starve with me for almost two days once, knowing all the time that the money was there. I was extremely curious to see how long he could hold out on me. My mind now began working rapidly. I would navigate the two of them into my room, extract the money from the vault, hand it to her, and upon the next trip to the bathroom, I would take the money out of her bag and put it back in Goethe's Faust. I would let Carl give her the 50 francs he had been talking about that would pay for the taxi. She wouldn't look for the 200 francs until the morning. If she were really crazy, she wouldn't miss the money. And if she weren't crazy, she would probably tell herself that she had lost the money in the taxi. In any case, she would leave the house as she had entered it in a trance. She would never stop to note the address on her way out. I felt certain of that. The plan worked out admirably, except that we had to give her a fuck before bundling her off. It all happened quite unexpectedly. I had given her the 200 francs to Carl's amazement, and I had persuaded him to fork out the 50 francs for the taxi. She was busy the while writing another poem in pencil on a scrap of paper which she had torn from a book. I was sitting on the divan, and she was sitting in front of me, stark naked, her ass staring me in the face. I thought I would see it if she continued writing. I would... I thought I would see if she'd continue writing should I put a finger up her craft. I did it very gently, as if exploring the delicate petals of a rose. She kept on scribbling, without the least murmur of approval or disapproval, merely opening her legs a little more for my convenience. In an instant, I had a tremendous erection. I got up and shoved my prick inside her. She sprawled forward over the desk, the pencil still in her hand. Bring her over here, said Carl, who was in bed and squirming about like an eel now. I turned her around, got it in frontwise, and lifting her off her feet, dragged her over to the bed. Carl pounced on her immediately, grunting like a wild boar. I let him have his fill, and then I let her have it again from the rear. When it was over, she asked me for some wine, and while I was filling the glass, she began to laugh. It was a weird laugh, like nothing I'd heard before. Suddenly, she stopped, asked for paper and pencil, then a pad, to which which to support the paper. She sat up put her feet over the edge of the bed and began composing another poem. She had now written two or three lines. She asked for her revolver. 
Revolver? Shrieked Carl, springing out of bed like a rabbit. What revolver? The one in my bag, she calmly replied. I feel like shooting someone now. You have a good time for your 200 francs. Now it is my turn. With this, she made a leap for the bag. We pounced on her and threw it to the floor. She bit and scratched and kicked with all her strength. See if there's a gun in the bag, said Carl, pinning her. I jumped up, grabbed the bag, and saw that there was no gun in it, and at the same time I extracted the two bills and hid them under the paper wig on the desk. Throw some water on her quick. I think she's going to have a fit. I rushed to the sink, filled a pitcher with water, and threw it over her. She gasped, wiggled a bit, like a fish out of water, sat up with a weird smile and said, Ça y est, c'est bien essayé. Laissez-moi sortir. Good, I thought to myself. At least we're rid of her. To Carl, watch her close. I'll get her things. We'll have to dress her and put her in a cab. We dried her off and dressed her as best we could. A little uneasy feeling that she'd start something again before we could get her out of the place. And what if she should start yelling in the street just for the devil of it? We dressed in turn rapidly, watching her like a hawk. Just as we were ready to go, she thought of the scrap of paper she had left on the desk, the unfinished poem, and groping about it for her eyes, fell on the bills tucked under the paper wig. My money, she yelled. Don't be silly, I said calmly, holding her arm. You don't think we'd rob you, do you? You've got your money in your bag. She gave me a quick, penetrating glance and dropped her eyes. Je vous demande pardon, she said. Je suis très nerveux ce soir. You said it, said Carl, hustling her to the door. That was clever of you, Joey, he said in English as we went down the stairs. Where do you live, asked Carl when we had hailed the taxi. Nowhere, she replied. I'm tired. Tell him to drop me off at my hotel, at a hotel, any hotel. Carl seemed touched. Do you want us to go along with you, he asked. No, she said, I want to sleep. Come on, I said, pulling him away. She'll be all right. I slammed the door and waved goodnight. Carl stood looking at the receding taxi in a dazed way. What's the matter with you? You're not worried about her, are you? If she's crazy, she won't need the money, nor a hotel either. I know, but just the same. Listen, Joey. You're a hard-hearted son of a bitch. And the money, Jesus, we fucked her good and proper. Yeah, I said, it was lucky I knew where you kept your dough. You mean that was my money, he said, suddenly realizing what I meant. Yes, Joey, that eternal feminine always draws us on a great poem, Faust. At this time... He went over to the wall, leaned against it, then doubled over with hysterical laughter. I thought I was the quick-witted one, he said, but I'm only a novice. Listen, tomorrow we'll spend that money. We'll have a good feed somewhere, and I'll take you to a real restaurant for a change. By the way, I remarked, was her poetry any good? I didn't have a chance to study it. I mean, those verses in the bathroom. There was one good line, he said. The rest was lunatical. 
Lunatical? There's no such word in English. Well, that's what it was. Crazy. Wouldn't describe it. You have to coin a new word for it. Lunatical. I like that word. I'm going to use it. And now I think I'm going to tell you something, Joey. You remember the revolver? What revolver? There was no revolver. Yes, there was, he replied, giving me a queer smile. I hid it in the bread box. So you went through her bag first? Is that it? I was just looking for a little change, he said, hanging his head as though he to feel sheepish about it. I don't believe that, I said. There must have been some other reason. You're pretty bright, Joey, he retorted gaily. But you miss a thing or two now and then. Do you remember when she squatted down to make pee-pee up at the ramparts? She had given me her bag to hold. I felt something hard inside, something like a gun. I didn't say anything because I didn't want to frighten you. But when you started walking her back to the house, I got scared. When she went to the bathroom, I opened her bag and found the gun. It was loaded. Here are the bullets, if you don't believe me. I looked at them in complete stupefaction. A cold chill ran up and down my spine. She must have been really crazy, I said, heaving a sigh of relief. No, said Carl, she's not crazy at all. She's playing at it, and her poems aren't crazy either. They're lunatical. She may have been hypnotized. Somebody may have put her to sleep, put a gun in her hand, and told her to bring back 200 francs. That is really crazy, I exclaimed. He made no answer. He walked along with head down, silent for a few minutes. What puzzles me, he said, looking up, is this. Why did she forget about the revolver so quickly? And why didn't she look in her bag for the money when you lied to her? I think she knew that the revolver was gone, and the money too. I think she was frightened of us. And now I'm getting frightened again myself. I think we'd better take a hotel for the night. Tomorrow, you take a little trip somewhere and stay away for a few days. We turned without another word and started walking rapidly toward Montmartre. We were panic-stricken. This little incident precipitated our flight to Luxembourg. But I am months ahead of my story. Let me go back to our menage à trois. Well, another day in the life of 1930s Paris with a couple of authors who seem to continuously swing between consuming people and consuming food and consuming drink. Mm. I still, you know, it, it's uh, there's something still charming going on, but at the same time, uh, how many times did they use like the word crazy to describe her. I mean, lunatical is fun also because it has the word tickle in it. I like it a lot. Um, but, um, this sex scene is distinctly less uh, sexy. Um, although I could put myself into that place where he initiated contact, where Joey initiated contact with her. Um, but she seems vulnerable and, and therefore that's, that's pretty unsexy. The fact that they're willing to um, 
like to not even consider vulnerability as a reason not to have sex with a woman is very interesting or I don't know if it's interesting what is it it's disheartening um yeah anyway um that's that is the adventure for today and um I just wanted to let you know that we are on or I am there's no we on Spotify Stitcher Google um so you can stream the podcast any of those places of course I have the Facebook page and I'd just love it if you could share this with your friends we're starting to see some um people folk, folks listening to the podcast which is really great uh and would love to have more and then get some dialogue going let's talk about this stuff let's talk about commodification and let's talk about humanity and let's talk about mental health and let's talk about rape and let's talk about sex and let's talk about touch let's have some good conversations about what's good and what's not thanks for joining me again and i'll see you soon for our next section of quiet days and cliche by henry miller have a good one folks for you